A Minnesota artist turned terrorist during the tumult of the 1970s. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Monday, May 1st. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a new look at the short, complicated life of Camilla Hall. We'll explore what her story might offer as we seek to understand the narrative of radicalization. That's coming a bit later in the hour. Joe Santos is with us for a look at what bankers and regulators got wrong in the days that led up to the closure of Silicon Valley Bank. Plus, mining practices have modernized, but the laws governing mining proposals on federal land harken back to 1872. We'll talk with Bonnie Gestring from Earthworks about why it's important to understand modern mining right now. We're live from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The king of the savannah is returning to the prairie. The Great Plains Zoo is breaking ground on their new African lion exhibit today. Denise DiPaolo is director of public relations and marketing at the Great Plains Zoo in Sioux Falls. She's with me now on the phone to talk about their big plans for the big cats. Denise, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You don't know how excited I am to be talking with you. <laughs> this has been a long time coming. And I've lived in uh, Sioux Falls long enough to know that there used to be lions at the Great Plains Zoo. Tell us a little bit about the history of this that goes way back. And then let's start with the history that's just five years old. Right. So, I mean, I think there's a really long history of lions being in Sioux Falls, um, dating way back to, you know, when Senator Pettigrew had you know, collected animals and displayed them all around town at different parks. And so sometimes you'll hear the stories about the lions being um, kind of stored almost uh, for the winter at Paris Park and kids beating on the doors and getting them riled up and, you know, not the kind of uh, experience we want our lions to ever have. But, um, you know, that was something that a lot of people who grew up here um, a while ago remember. Um, and then we, of course, had them at the Great Plains Zoo for many, many years. And then about 30 years ago, uh, our last lion um, left us. And uh, ever since then, we've had people asking to bring them back. This is not just about what visitors want. It is also about conservation. Tell us a little bit about why lions should be in a zoo for people who say this lion should never be held in any kind of captivity. What's the full story there? I know. Um, I think ideally... We would love it if animals, if, if zoos weren't necessary, if conservation programs weren't necessary, then we wouldn't have to do this important work. But um, lions are vulnerable in the wild. Uh, there's only, you know, several thousand left out there. Um, we are a part of the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And uh, part of us bringing lions here is working with a much larger species survival plan that takes all of those 200 or so zoos that meet those AZA standards and really thoughtfully looking at what does that larger population need? How can we help to, you know, whether it's breeding, whether it's um, providing a home for a bachelor pride, perhaps. Um, we're right now having those conversations with the SSP to figure out uh, what is going to be uh, the best for that larger population, and we're just excited to bring them here to Sioux Falls. Yeah, tell us about their habitat, the part that we'll be able to see, and then we'll talk a little bit about the things that we never see. What will visitors be able to experience? How close can they get? 
Right. So um, it's going to be a really cool exhibit. I think there's no two ways about that. So we are going to be able to view these lions year round. Uh, we'll have two uh, separated indoor viewing spaces. So we will have the possibility of having two small prides at one time. Um, in our facility, uh, it could end up being one larger pride. It's just going to depend on what the needs of the species survival plan are. Um, however, uh, we'll have two separate spaces to view inside, and then we'll have uh, several outdoor yards where people will be able to view as well. We'll have um, a Cope Rock uh, viewing hut, which is a traditional uh, African um, rock feature that's incorporated into a lot of your the most holistic exhibit possible so that those animals feel comfortable and at home and that there's plenty of things that are you know hidden for them to where they're able to get you know the water they need and all of those little things uh you know and maybe the public can see them maybe the public can't but um really giving the the animals plenty of space to be able to live really great lives. And then we also have, uh, we'll have a training window. So people will be able to watch as the lions go through some different training behaviors. And a lot of these behaviors will help them to participate in their own healthcare. And uh, something that's really exciting, uh, you know, behind the scenes is that we're building this as a species specific habitat where people who visited our zoo over the decades might see, uh, you know, our black bear exhibit and remember when there were kangaroos there. Well, recently we, we were able to update that exhibit to be species specific for black bears. And most of that was uh, invested behind the scenes that uh, there was more space for them, that there were you know, there's a blood uh, draw sleeve to where they could, you know, voluntarily have their blood drawn. And then with the lions, there's going to be considerations uh, for that as well. Yeah, that uh, that new exhibit for the bears is just uh, spectacular to behold. So this has been an $8 million public-private fundraising campaign. Um, that's what a lot of this excitement is about. Depending on what time you're listening to us, today's groundbreaking at 4.30 will feature various speakers, including Mayor Paul Tenhaken and others. Um, Denise, any final thoughts that you want people to know? I guess the main thing to say would be when do, when do the lions come? When can, <laughs> you know, now that everybody's waited so long, I don't want to give them the impression that they can go, you know, in June. Know. This is just a groundbreaking people, but it's moving, it's moving in that direction. <laughs> What do you want to leave you know us what? with? It's taken, sure. It's taken us a long time to get here. The pandemic certainly threw a monkey wrench yeah. into this project, just like it did into so many other things. Um, but Dee Knutson, who was on the board of the zoo back then, who's now on our combined uh, Sioux Falls Zoo and Aquarium board, she's been a huge champion of this from the very beginning. We're so grateful for her enthusiasm. You know, so many individuals donated to this. This The city donated 1.4 million. So there's just a lot of people who feel deeply invested and we just really want to honor that. And next summer, summer 2024, we are going to be excited to actually have the lions here at the zoo. It's going to take a year to build this thing, but it's going to be so worth it. Denise DePaulo, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The Rapid Creek watershed may soon be impacted by a mineral withdrawal currently being debated in the Black Hills, and that could impact the drinking water of thousands of people. The Black Hills Clean Water Alliance is hosting a day of talks and presentations tomorrow. 
That's to educate the community about the potential move. It's Tuesday, May 2nd. Their featured guest, Bonnie Gestring. Bonnie is the Northwest Program Director at Earthworks and is with me now on the phone. Bonnie, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Help people understand why now is the right time to be informed. What's happening in the Black Hills that makes this urgent? Yes, the Forest Service has proposed a mineral withdrawal for um, the uh, approximately 20,000 acres of land around the Pectola Reservoir. And they're taking public comment right now on whether people um, want to see the mineral withdrawal approved. Mineral withdrawals are just an incredibly important tool that federal agencies have to protect uh, certain areas of federal public land against new mining in order to safeguard existing resources, such as a community drinking water aquifer or cultural resources. So um, this is a particularly important time for the public to engage and, and let the agencies know what they want. Help people understand the Forest Service's role here because the mining laws for withdrawals go back to the 1800s. Yeah. Yes, um, the uh, hard rock mining, which is generally metal mining, gold, silver, copper, um, is governed on our federal public lands by the 1872 mining law, which was enacted 150 years ago under President Ulysses S. Grant before South Dakota was even a state. And that law still governs mining on our federal public lands um, 150 years later. And it prioritizes mining over all other land uses, which is why these mineral withdrawals are such an important tool, because it's one of the few ways that our federal agencies can um, place restrictions on certain federal lands in order to protect important resources against um, new mining activities. Um, and so that's the role of the Forest Service here, because uh, mining is proposed, mineral exploration is proposed on some Forest Service land that are important to people in terms of um, um, community drinking water aquifers and cultural resources. And this is one tool that the agencies can use to respond to community concerns and say, okay, we could withdraw these federal lands um, from new claim staking, new mining, um, and protect them if, if the community um, supports that. So speaking of new claim staking, in 2019, there were 230 new mining claims in South Dakota, and last year, 4,248 new claims. What do you make of that? Yeah, um, that's just a, a, a big push for new mining activity. Um, and I think um, particularly... Um, You know, I think it's, it's certainly the reason why the public needs to engage in this process, because there is so much um, exploration happening across the West. Um, you know, in, in this particular case, it's primarily gold mining, but um, lots of other resources being um, um, there's a big push across the West for lots of different um, types of mineral exploration. So. 
definitely a time um, to engage in this public process because under the 1872 mining law, federal agencies really feel like their hands are tied, as people have probably heard at the at the public meetings that they've participated in, that um, if a claim has been staked and a, um, they've demonstrated discovery, then there's a right to mine, and it really places limitations on our federal agency's ability to protect areas for other resources. So while we're waiting for Congress to update the 1872 mining law, this is one tool that the agencies have. It's limited, but it's an important tool. And um, and they need to hear that there's some uh, community support for this. Mining has evolved, even if some of the original uh, regulation has not um, as we just discussed, should people be concerned about responsible mining, irresponsible mining? How do we think about mining in 2023 in ways that maybe we didn't in the 80s or the 50s or the 1800s? Yeah, there's no doubt that mining is done better today than it was historically. However, uh, modern mining is mining lower-grade deposits um, because the higher-grade deposits have been mined. And that means a much larger area of disturbance a much larger volume of mine waste and uh, mine waste that remains on the landscape in, in perpetuity. Um, so mines are still very large industrial activities that have a big footprint on the land. And even when done responsibly, they may not be um, consistent with protecting other land uses, such as cultural resources or fish and wildlife habitat or, or water supplies. And responsible mining still has often water quality impacts. Um, the United States Environmental Protection Agency identifies mining as the leading source of toxic releases in the United States today, with toxic releases to the land, air, and water. So, um, yes, it's certainly done better, but it can still present risks, particularly to important um, water resources. So, communities should still be concerned about long-term protections. This is not the first conversation you've had about the impact, the devastating effect on clean water that mining can have. You've done this in other communities. Are there lessons that you have learned that Black Hills residents should be aware of now going forward? Yes, and that is why people should come to the presentation. <laughs> right, yeah, um, we, we yeah. only have a few minutes to preview it, so, I mean, I will remind people about that, but what, you know, a lot of people aren't going to be able to make that. You have a statewide audience right now. What do you want to add to that? Yeah, there are lots of communities in um, western states across the country that have used this tool, um, mineral withdrawals, to protect water resources. Um, I would say... Um, the most important um, recommendations that I have are to engage in the process and express support for the mineral withdrawal, um, both to the federal land management agencies, but also to your local, state, and federal um, decision makers, because they will have influence over this process as well. So get informed and get engaged in the process um, and, and, and spread the word. So I was just interviewing a public official from a different town the other day, and he was expressing to me, you know, yes, I, I get all these emails from what feels to him like environmental activists, but by the way, I get all these emails from people on the, quote, other side, 
And so I feel like this is just a, you know, two constituents battling against each other. How can people communicate about this issue in a way that isn't just sending an email, making a lot of noise, and therefore being seen as just another activist who has my email address? Oh, yes. Um, well, certainly um, our our um, representatives are, are there to serve us. So uh, making a phone call to your local um, office, um, to your city council or the mayor or the county commissioner, um, the um, whoever it is that you're trying to engage with, um, making a phone call, sending a letter, um, which certainly differentiates from an email, but making that personal contact and letting them know that you're a resident that cares about this issue. And then, of course, there's a, a particular federal process that the agencies are opening up for public comment. Um, you go to the website. Um, there's a link um, where you can upload and send comments, um, both in an email form, but also you can write a letter and upload that into the uh, the website as well to talk about um, what this means for you as a resident and your concern about the quality of your water and um, that you want the, um, your representatives to respond accordingly. All right, this feedback. So uh, this I guess the answer is yeah. not a rote, um, not to, um, to differentiate from being um, uh, just a, um, uh, another form letter, but talking specifically about yourself and your personal concerns and why you care. Yeah. All right. This is Tuesday, May 2nd. Bonnie Gestring is the Northwest Program Director at Earthworks. Um, any details about um, where this is at, Bonnie, or what you want people to, what do you want to leave people with here for more information? Yeah, it's tomorrow night at the Dahl Center at 7 p.m., and um, I encourage everyone to come and really enjoy having people participate. And then comments um, on the mineral withdrawal are due by June 20th. So just flagging that, um, that deadline for everyone who wants to engage in the process. Bonnie, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, it has been about seven weeks since the dramatic collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Michael Barr, chief, I'm sorry, vice chair for supervision for the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, recently released a revealing report on the Fed's internal investigation relating to that collapse. Joe Santos is here on Monday Macro to help us unpack that 100-page report. Dr. Santos is director of and professor of economics in the Ness School of Management and Economics at South Dakota State University. And he's with us from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio on the campus there in Brookings. Joe, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Laurie. And listeners can follow along at uh, Joe Santos blog, schooled.blog.com. Joe, let's remind people about the collapse of this bank and what has happened since then before we get into the report. Sure. So as you said in your opener, uh, Silicon Valley Bank closed in early March. Uh, they had a massive deposit outflow 
uh, event, <laughs> $40 billion uh, exited their balance sheet in a day, and the management team anticipated that the next day, were they to open, they would experience about a $100 billion, these are with Bs, uh, deposit outflow. Uh, and so the bank was very quickly closed, um, and it is no more. Uh, so this was an enormous um, sort of event of fragility in the banking system. And uh, of course, Silicon Valley Bank is a state charter, chartered in California, member of the Federal Reserve FDIC insured uh, bank. And it's got a holding company that the Federal Reserve also oversees. So it didn't take very long for everyone uh, to turn away from the bank, which was now, you know, in the past tense, um, and look at the Fed and ask, what were you doing uh, to regulate, to supervise? this institution. And so that prompted this internal investigation, this self-study. And so uh, it was Friday afternoon, just a few days ago, uh, the Fed released the study. And this was a, um, a look at its own uh, behavior, uh, both around the crisis, but more importantly, for several years leading in up to the crisis. Uh, and spoiler alert, um, <laughs> it was a sort of uh, a Maya culpa event where the Fed basically said it was mostly due to our lax supervisory um, role in this okay. process. So before we get into that, how much of this is PR and how much of this is, uh, you know, we have to do this report and do this investigation? Where's that line in this case? Sh sure. Um, I I'm I'm a uh, I think rightfully cynical person most of the time, but I think in this case this really was an attempt for the Fed to to sort of do the post mortem mm -hmm. uh, and try to determine what exactly uh, was the source of this. I, if if there was any strategy here in terms of public relations, um, I don't think it was so much to say it wasn't us because they said it they was. Say it is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but but uh, but I think it may be more to kind of frame the problem, which had, and we can go into this, but I think yeah. a lot to do with sort of a culture right. around supervision and regulation that had taken hold. And I, I think maybe the thinking, if there was, again, any public relations strategic thinking here was to say, look, we sort of uh, drank the Kool-Aid, if you will, around this notion that supervisory authority needed to be uh, managed very carefully and that they had to be mindful of imposing too much of a regulatory burden on these institutions they regulated and maybe that was their mistake that they approached with too easy a touch but sort of it was our fault but not really because this was sort of the culture in which we operated. I want to go back before we get to that point because I don't want to let the Silicon Valley Bank Board of Directors and Management off the hook here. The key takeaway there are four key takeaways from the report, you say, and the first is that board of directors. How did they get it so wrong? What did they get wrong? And, and it almost feels, I mean, willful. Did they get it wrong willfully? Yep. What happened there? Yeah, that's right. So the, the first of the four, as you say, is sort of it, it was the bank's fault. And then two, three, and four was it was our fault, the Fed. Um, and that first one is really striking to read the report. Um, because essentially what they got wrong was what we were talking about about a month ago, this idea yeah. of interest rate risk and the idea that if interest rates rise suddenly, um, you don't earn anything more on your assets than you did before because those folks are locked in for long terms, think 30-year mortgages. But the sources of your funds, these depositors, are a real flight risk. And so when interest rates rise, they're going to go 
to find higher rates unless you can match the higher rates. And, and of course, that then compromises your profits. So the board uh, <laughs> had sort of two options. Either they confront they could confront the reality that interest rates were going to rise because everybody saw what the Fed was doing with inflation and fighting it and so forth. They could either confront that and reevaluate their sort of their balance sheet of borrowing short and lending long. Or they could um, derive a sort of what the Fed called a counterintuitive model that said, no, actually, if rates rise, profits will rise. Uh, we'll be okay. And so they opted for the second, which really is astounding uh, that this, this cuts against the grain yeah. of any sort of textbook uh, representation of what happens to your profits when rates rise. But, yes, yeah, so they, they determined, no, 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 it's actually going to be okay. Of course, it wasn't. And the rest, as we say, is history. But but yeah, that was on the board. Now, again, it's interrelated because, of course, they're being supervised. But in some ways, I think we could forgive the Fed for not picking that one up in real time. That the board, essentially, their idea of risk management was to sort of redefine the model with which they evaluated risk, yeah. redefine it in a way that said they would be fine when interest rates went up. Yeah, because we're going to get to this idea of, you know, who exactly were those regulators and how did it shift? But as the bank grew so exponentially, but it really does seem like there was a, I would call it delusional, that's probably yep. not fair. Is it nefarious? Is it delusional? Or were these just t these people were taking a huge risk and it did not pay off. Somebody was sweating in bullets. And yeah, you know, somebody and I, in some room somewhere said, this is a bad idea. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, this the idea of risk, uh, yeah. without getting really nerdy, is, you know, there's a probability distribution, right? There's a chance this happens. There's a chance ha that happens. In some ways, this really wasn't risk because, you know, you open up page one of the textbook and it says if interest rates rise, right. <laughs> you will this be squeezed will in this yeah. way. <laughs> so with probability okay. one, right? So, right? so in some ways, to your point, um, there seems to be something of a sort of delusional thinking around this because there's no way the board didn't know, one, that the Fed would tighten aggressively because inf inflation was so high, and then, two, what the just mechanical effects of that would be on a balance sheet where you're borrowing short, as we say, and lending long. Yeah. Okay, so let's move ahead. And, again, you can follow along at schooled.blog.com to see charts and graphs. But this is a small bank that got big fast. How much did they grow? How quickly and how did that growth change who was watching over them? Yeah, th this is that's right. So this gets really interesting. It's sort of the intersection of the very extraordinary growth of the bank with the way the Fed sort of organizes its regulatory structure. So yeah. so the bank was like a 50 billion dollar bank and even much smaller than that earlier, but a 50 billion dollar bank think around like 2019. And then it grew to a $212 billion bank. So, you know, four and a half times larger by 2022 when all went dark. And this had to do with, you know, the Silicon Valley connections. There was a lot of fundraising and, and their depositors were disproportionately uh, representing that, that sort of high tech uh, space. And so these folks were essentially attracting funds and then depositing them. So Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet grew very, very large um, for reasons that had to do with just the amount of funding taking place in initial public offerings and special purpose acquisition companies and all this stuff. Those 
recipients of the funding park them, park the funding at SFB. So you have this enormous growth. So there was that. And then there's this, the way the Fed organizes its supervision. So this is a little uh, clunky, but very quickly, they go by asset size. So if you're, you know, your assets are 10 billion or less, it's a community bank organization sort of portfolio. And that's who supervises you. And then if you're like between 10 billion and 100 billion, then you're a regional bank organization and that's who funds you at the Fed and or, I'm sorry, supervises you at the Fed and so on. Well, Silicon Valley Bank was just blowing through these buckets. <laughs> and yeah. so they very quickly they started as a CBO, community bank would be the appropriate sort of supervisory level, then they became regional and then they became these large uh this sort of large bank organization category and they just blew through this. Meanwhile, the regulators are operating at the speed of regulators. Mm -hmm. And so the teams who are going in there and evaluating their risk management and so on are of the community bank and regional bank sort, just as a sort of practical matter of the kind of stickiness of the way the regulatory organization works. So probably, and this is the Fed's evaluation, the team was not right for the $212 billion SVB while it was right for the $50 billion SUB, but 50 became 212 in like 26 months. Yeah. And the Fed just didn't adjust, if you will, the sophistication, and this isn't personal to the regulators, but the yeah. sort of the sophistication with which they supervised SVB. And then to your point a few minutes ago, there was also in the midst of this a con context or a culture of we need to take a little bit of a lighter touch from a regulatory standpoint. Where did that come from? Yeah, so this dates all the way back to the Dodd-Frank Act after the financial crisis, and there was a lot, a lot in that act about supervision and regulation and very little about the concerns in the way of regulatory burden. Think the non-interest expense, the cost of having to comply with all the regulations. Nobody thought about that because we had just come back from the financial crisis, and so the bias, if you will, was on supervision and regulation, not so much the concern about cost. That pendulum began to swing, and by 2018, um, a, an act was passed, the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, uh, was passed in 2018 that basically provided the regulatory space to back off a bit, to say, look, burden does matter. The costs that you're imposing on these institutions by forcing them to comply in the way we are forcing them to comply in Dodd-Frank matters. It's costly. It limits intermediation and so on and so forth. So we should sort of go the other way. And, and in the report, the Fed reports that through surveys and so on, it's really quite fascinating to read mm -hmm. that folks did say, look, I kind of felt like I had to back off. That seemed to be the kind of you know, intellectual norm uh, that was prevailing. And so when we thought we saw something, we made sure we saw it a second time and then a third time before we intervened because we didn't want to be called out for sort of neglecting the burden that we impose on these institutions. It was just this sort of pendulum a pendulum shift toward sort of being concerned about regulatory burden, and in this case, at the cost of um, prudential supervision and regulation, which is a really interesting, you know, yeah. explanation for what was going yeah. on. Yeah. Does this report, does this um, this bank collapse and this report help create a balance in the future? What happens next? Yeah, so the, that's a great question. The, the Fed broadly identifies sort of two you know, areas for improvement, right? Things to work on. Um, one is a stronger supervisory framework. So 
that breaking the organization of regulation into community bank regulation and regional bank regulation and so on, something the Fed calls tailoring, um, that tailoring process is one that the Fed now wants to revisit, um, you know, saying that an $80 billion a bank uh, will be evaluated or supervised by this organization or, or that one within the Fed. They want to revisit that to make sure that they're more um, accurately sort of deploying or assigning resources to the institution based on the complexity of the institution. Um, and then the other is just the whole regulatory framework, which is, I think, code for saying kind of going against the grain of the current cultural norm, which is kind of do no harm in terms of regulatory burden to sort of back off that and begin perhaps to recognize that there are costs when you know hundred billion dollar banks fail as well and, and yeah. begin to sort of shift the pendulum that way fascinating stuff i know um all things considered i believe has some reporting on the banking crisis as well this afternoon so stay tuned for that joe santos <laughs> you can find his work at uh, school.blog.com we also have links to his latest post on our website, you can get there at sdpb.org slash news. Joe, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Lori. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. On this day in 2015, Shannon County was officially renamed Oglala Lakota County. In a November 2014 referendum, 80% of the county voters approved the name change. The county had been named for Peter Shannon. Shannon was Chief Justice of the Dakota Territorial Supreme Court from 1873 to 1881. The name change reflected that most of the county's residents were members of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. Oglala, Lakota County is in the southwestern part of the state, bordering Nebraska. Its largest community is Pine Ridge. It does not have a functioning county seat, Hot Springs, in neighboring Fall River County serves as its administrative center. The county contracts with Fall River for its auditor, treasurer, and registrar of deeds. Oglala, Lakota County lies entirely within the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and contains parts of Badlands National Park. It's one of five South Dakota counties entirely in reservation land. The county is also the only dry county in South Dakota. Liquor sales are not allowed within its boundaries. On November 4, 2014, county residents voted to rename Shannon County to Oglala Lakota County by a margin of 2,161 to 526. The name change was ratified by the state legislature the following March, and it was on this day, in 2015, that Governor Dugard proclaimed May 1st as the official day to rename Shannon County to Oglala, Lakota County. Production assistance for this day in South Dakota history comes from Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, a new book covers a life that ended almost 50 years ago and what we can learn from it now. Patrick Hicks is here with me in the studio. The author, Rachel Hannell, is on the phone. Hi, Rachel. Yes. I'm going to tell people about your book. So it's called Not the Camilla We Knew, One Woman's Path from Small Town America to the Symbionese 
Liberation Army. And Rachel Hannell, the author, is coming to Augustana University this week on Wednesday. She's going to talk about how she uh, marched down this path for more than 20 years of writing this book. Dr. Patrick Hicks is with us. He's chair of the English and Journalism Department at Augustana, and he is with me in the Kirby Family Studio. So that is where we will begin. Rachel, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Patrick, thanks for stopping by, and thanks for always bringing these amazing authors to oh. to South Dakota. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here. I want to start with you, Rachel, because this is um, a book that has been a, a labor for you for so many years, partially because there was not much in the way of resources for Camilla until you went digging deeper into memoirs and letters and getting to know the right people. Tell me a little bit about your journey, and then we'll catch people up with who Camilla Hall is. Sure, exactly. Yes, I came across Camilla's story in 1999, and the book came out in December, so it was a 23-year project. Um, You know, during that time, I had written my own memoir, and I teach, and I do other things, so it's not like I was working every single day on it that certainly would have been frustrating but it was um you know just matter like you said a matter of finding the right people finding the right documents and then just because it's non-fiction and I think Patrick can speak to this too I mean there's just so much kind of thought and analysis you have to put into it I mean you can find documents but then you kind of have to put it all together like you would a puzzle and so for me that always takes really a tremendous amount of time too to try to figure out okay I have this in front of me but what does it all mean right and I think we could spend an hour with the two of you because Patrick has placed (laughs) another novel which I'm very excited to read and has gone the fictional route with all these these the reality of history and you from a creative nonfiction spot are going at this from a different direction. So that would be an interesting panel discussion we should have in the future, (laughs) fiction or nonfiction, as we deal with these things. But let's tell people a little bit about Camilla Hall, because she's from Minnesota. Her parents work at Gustavus Adolphus in St. Peter. And she graduates from the University of Minnesota. She's an artist. She's kind of quiet. Um, She ends up as part of this liberation army, this this cell of terrorists in the 1970s, the early 70s. They rob banks. They kidnap Patty Hearst. They murder a school, uh, the first black school superintendent. But yet they are claiming to be anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-misogyny. It's cinematic in its scope. But tell me a little bit about what we know about Camilla before she moved to Berkeley, before she's radicalized, if that's the word. I don't know if that's the word you would use, but before she joins this group, who is she? Yeah, so, you know, I think when we do look at her life before uh, she moved to California, we can see some of these roots. I mean, certainly not the violent piece of it or part of it, but her family... Uh, her dad was a pastor. He taught theology at Gustavus Adolphus College. It's that um, that Swedish Lutheran tradition, and that it was a huge social justice was a huge part of that church's mission. So Camilla grew up with this knowledge of, you know, what we we have to help people. We need to help people. It's our duty to help people. And her first job out of college was in social work. She worked mm-hmm. for county welfare agencies in Minnesota. So she was trying to help. Um, specifically young unwed mothers. So you could see this this real passion within her of, of wanting to help and trying to make society 
a better place. Um, and so I think those principles were always there in her, but certainly once she gets into the, the Berkeley of the early 1970s, um, some of those thoughts just really start to get corrupted. Tell me a little bit about what you were thinking as you thought about her life and what it offers us today. Because people in her family, maybe it's hard to say goodbye. It's hard to know that this is part of their story forever. But yet you're trying to figure out why does this story matter now? Definitely. Well, you know, one thing when I was wrapping up this book um, was in the spring of 2020. So I was about to go on sabbatical or I had just started my sabbatical and I thought, all right, this is it. You know, I can do one last revision and I think it'll be ready to send out. Um, so of course it's the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. We're in the, we're in the beginning of it. And then George Floyd is murdered. And then a few months later we have the Capitol insurrection. And I just suddenly started to see Camilla's story as now a very relevant story that maybe before it had been more like, Oh, this is history. But suddenly we are dealing with now another set of people who are becoming very impassioned and as part of that impassioned piece of them, you know, they're, they're getting guns and they're becoming violent. And Camilla was far left. We're seeing some of this on the far right, but it, it still is suddenly relevant again. And I think the more we can have conversations about what is going to lead somebody down this path, um, the better off it will be. Patrick, I want to bring you into the conversation around this idea of a narrative nonfiction story that is that is his, that this is a true story. It's, it has a regional basis in, in our region and the importance for your students and for readers today to dive into something like this and ask those kinds of hard questions because the book does that very well. But mm -hmm. the reader also has to do that. The reader also has to ask those questions. Yeah, and that's uh, precisely the, uh, one of the main reasons that I, I uh, invited Rachel to come down and speak at Augustana. Um, she'll be speaking at Augustana at 6 o'clock um, uh, this Wednesday in Humanities uh, Room 123. And I see this as, uh, it, it, obviously, it's, it's history. And for my students, it's ancient history. It's the 1970s. But um, I, I see these echoes, what Rachel was saying. You know, we talk about the, the insurrection, um, certainly the Oath Keepers and the, the Proud Boys. I mean, domestic terrorism has been on the rise. So I see this as helping us to sort of see, um, see the present by looking at the past. Um, and I'm also um, just a, a fan of Rachel's work. I mean, she's mm -hmm. a phenomenal writer, so I'm really, really excited that she's going to spend some time with my students. Yeah. Well, the feeling is mutual. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> and, to, and to that point, for people who don't know who Patty Hearst is, this leads to my next question. She is very famous at the time. She's the daughter of an heiress. Um, she's an heiress. She's the daughter of a publisher. And her kidnapping and then her subsequent saying that she is with this group. She goes and holds a gun at a bank robbery. She says, uh, you know, that she thinks her parents are sort of betting on how much she is worth. This overshadows Camilla in a lot of ways because after a, a, a shootout where Camilla is killed, her parent, everybody just wants to know whether Patty Hearst is alive or not. And her parents will have to wait for the news. Tell me what it's like to be, what did you find from letters and, and, and papers what it was like to be in her family watching this unfold. Yeah, um, you are so right in that Patty Hearst just completely overshadowed 
everything. I was just looking yesterday. I found something online that just recapped the SLA story. And it's like two people are mentioned. It's Patty Hearst and it's Donald DeFries. And mm-hmm. everyone else are just kind of these nameless characters. So I think for the families of somebody like Camilla, you know, they, they have z- zero idea of what's going on. They have no idea what role their children are playing in this, how they're involved, because all we hear about is Patty, and um, she just really was the, the blinding son that, you know, um, obliterated everyone else. Yeah, Patty describes Camilla in her memoir years later as being, you know, not very, you know, combat ready. She's a little heavy set. There's definitely something going on with how Patty describes Camilla. What can you tell us, Rachel, and some of this is, you know, filling in blanks, but the last three months of Camilla's life, what would yeah, they have been like? Yeah, uh, really, my, my source here was Patty Hearst's memoir that came out in 1982. And, of course, you know, Patty wants to tell a story where she comes off looking very good and innocent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, well, you know, what's her motive in, in saying wrong things about Camilla? You know, so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can kind of trust her, her viewpoint on this. But she does provide a very good description of the places that they lived and the places they were hiding. So really what I could discern from that is these are nine people together in increasingly smaller places to live, like apartments and duplexes. And if you think about the pandemic, when we were stuck in our homes and we had a giant house and maybe there's only like two other people in there, to imagine nine people never, ever, ever leaving for three months, uh, you just have to imagine that some kind of group psychosis would have set in it. It's just really hard to believe that those were the conditions that Camilla and the others were living in. They really believe death is imminent. They, it is con- there are attacks. I mean, they, you know, again, there's no social media. They're in, a, in an echo chamber that we associate with modernity a little bit, but they perhaps are more so. Was she done writing poetry by this point? I know she was... She was an artist and, and a poet, and you read her poems and found her character there. But at this point, does she write anything near the last three months of her life that you're aware of? Yeah, there's really nothing out there um, that she had written during that time. And they did put out quite a number of communiques. The SLA were kind of famous for that, for yeah. sending these manifestos or these taped communiques to public radio stations to be broadcast. And I think out of all of those, I think there's 30 or 33 communiques, Camilla speaks for a grand total of maybe 30 seconds. So she is not even hardly involved in kind of this public face of the SLA during that time. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Patrick Hicks, one more time, when uh, the public can come see Rachel at Augie. That's going to be Wednesday, 6 o'clock in the Frixell Humanities Center, and the room is 123. It's free uh, and open to the public, and there'll be a book signing afterwards. The book is called Not the Camilla We Knew. It is from the University of Minnesota Press. I had to check that to make sure I was right. They have a great list. Rachel Hanel, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I look forward to Wednesday. Patrick Hicks, thank you as well. My pleasure. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on Tomorrow's In The Moment, a humanitarian crisis at our southern border. We'll talk with a woman who works to understand and to respond. Plus, is it true that if your pet cats were just a little bit bigger, they would eat you at their earliest convenience? We'll look at how cats evolved from the savannah to your sofa with the author of a new book. It's called The Cat's 
Meow. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening.